want to talk to you uh, this week and next about something that uh, I think is uh, very, very important to us as believers. It's uh, something that I think the most mature believers struggle with. Uh, the weaker ones struggle. Everybody struggles with this one, and it, it is something that is a bit of an acceptable sin within our, our, our generation, within our day. Um, my grandmother, who, I mean, my grandmother was a godly woman. I, I can, as long as I knew her, 45 years of my life, um, she, she always tried her best to follow Christ. I mean, very, very rarely can I think of any time that was inconsistent with her testimony at all. I mean, just absolutely. She loved to hear the word. She loved to sing songs praising God. She was always a woman of prayer. I remember some years back when she, as she was getting older, it became obvious to her doctors and to us that she shouldn't drive anymore. She was going blind. She had a, a condition called macular degeneration. And uh, any of you who have dealt with this with parents know how difficult it is that time when maybe they're not able to drive anymore and you got to kind of try to take away the car keys, so to speak. Uh, when, when, we, when we talked to her about that, that was one of the few times I saw a side of her that didn't really match up to the other part. And, and the reason was, understandably, that she was just worried, right? She was worried about losing these freedoms, worried about what her lifestyle would become. Would she be able to get from here to there? Uh, was her worry right? No, and no more than any of our other, that when we worry, is it right? It's sin, right? It's a lack of trust in God, and, and the God whom she trusted for so many years. And it, it led her really to more bad behavior, and she fought us on it, which was kind of fun. You know, when you have an 85-year-old woman fighting you, it's kind of a strange dynamic, I'll give you that, all right? And what she would, what she would do is she, she had a set of car keys, and she would go out, and she was like, I can still see. I am fine. I'll let you know God's protecting me. Yeah. One day, she was pulling out of, backing out of her driveway at her house in Dallas, Texas. And as she was backing out, she almost hit a child who was going by on a bicycle. She realized it at the last minute, saw the bicycle, saw what almost had happened. And at that point, she had a change in her mentality. She said, you know what? She came to us with the car keys and said, here, you know, I'm done with this. You know, I understand the danger it is. I understand all that kind of stuff. And and I want you guys to forgive me. I was worried, and my worry was sin, and it was wrong. But she was, she was brokenhearted about the ordeal that she went through, but she was very, very thankful that God had spared that life of that child. And she repented of her worrying, and she trusted in God to take care of her, which he, he always did for the next decade or, or and a half, really, before she eventually went to be with him. Worry is a disease that has infected the church Good and godly people struggle with this and often fail to live up to the direction that God gives his children about trusting him and finding contentment in him. In the Sermon on the Mount where we're looking today, which by the way is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived, Jesus is talking about in that sermon about character and conduct. He begins with the Beatitudes, which is all about your character, hunger and thirst for righteousness, humility, gentleness, uh, being a peacemaker, enduring persecution, all those kind of things. And he begins where you have to begin with the work that he does on us, which is a work of transformation from the inside out, right? I mean, he begins, he creates in us a clean heart, right? He gives us a new heart. He cuts away the fleshy old heart, and, and he gives us, a, we are new creations. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean we've arrived. And it doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore, right? So after he talks about that in the Beatitudes and what that all means, the character, he, he, flow, he flows from that into conduct. He talks about our outreach, how, how we're to be uh, cities that are on a hill. Our light isn't to be hidden. He talks about our lifestyle and how it is to impact, as he moves through the Sermon on the Mount, our personal relationships, our personal worship, uh, our personal attitudes, giving, all kinds of things. And then in, in chapter 6, the latter part of chapter 6, his focus becomes increasingly practical. He deals with our attitude towards money, the unnecessary stuff that men stockpile for selfish reasons. And then the passage we're going to look at today, beginning in verse 25, uh, Jesus turns the focus towards the necessities of life that we must have to even exist. These are things that we all need in life, but they can also become something that we have sinful attitudes about. This morning, we begin to look at a passage that is exceedingly familiar to most people. It's a portion of the Sermon on the Mount that most Christians know very, very well. But as familiar as the teaching is, I can hardly think of another passage that is so familiar, yet so disregarded in practice. It is a passage that deals with anxiety, with worry. It is a passage that strikes to the heart of trusting in God. In the same way as he, as he leads up to this passage, that he talks about earthly possessions becoming an idol, which can replace God on the throne of your life, which you'll talk about in the second hour, I'm sure, by becoming too important. So also the needs of this life, the very needs of this life, can become a source of worry, which replaces God on the throne of your life by fostering distrust. So starting today, we're going to look at the issue of worry, and I want, I want to call you to battle, okay, against this very common, very acceptable sin that should not be named among us. Hear what I'm saying? The only difference, really, I mean, one of the great differences between people of the Lord and people of the world is they have a foundation that they can trust in, right? We've been redeemed by the grace of God, by, by his outpouring of his work, uh, not our work, upon our lives. He has changed us, transformed us, and we live in a different way because of what he has done. And the glory that comes to God is when we live in accordance with that reality that he is not only a God who saves, but he is a God who transforms. He is a God who sanctifies. Ju he justifies, sanctifies, he glorifies, right? And he's doing the whole thing. I mean, yeah, I understand there's a, a partnership that we're called to respond, but can we respond without what he, he's done? No way, right? It's because of his work that we're able to even respond to a text like the one we're looking at today. So we're going to look at three things over the next two weeks. You have them on your outline. We're going to look at our adversary, which is this problem of worry. We're going to look at our arsenal. How do we combat this problem? And that's a provision that God has given us. It's talking about contentment. And then we're going to talk about our assurance, the promise that we have from God. So I want to provoke you this morning to wage war with worry. And my goal is simple. I want you and I to, to see worry, which has, again, become socially acceptable within the church to many, for what it is, according to God's word, which is an adversary, which renders you ineffective. You say, how does it render me ineffective? Well, what's the, what's the two greatest commandments? Anybody? Go ahead. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and... Love your neighbor yourself. Jesus said the whole law really is fulfilled in that, right? 
Well, see, when I worry, am I really loving God? What am I doing? What I, who do I think God is? Who am I confessing with my life of who he is? He's a God who can't provide, won't provide, doesn't provide, doesn't care, something like that, right? If I'm worrying about it. True? So I've set up an idol, a God of my own design in place of him. We'll still call him God. We'll still put on our tie. We'll come to church, but we're, we're worshiping a different God in a sense. You understand what I'm saying? So we're not fulfilling the first great commandment. How about the other one? Love others. When I'm worrying, where's my focus at? Self. It is absolutely utter self-centeredness, right? I always say, well, I'm worried about this person and their deal, but you're really worried about how that's going to impact them because of what it's going to impact you too. It's going to hurt you if your child goes through this or your wife goes through that. It's still selfish. We want to be effective soldiers of the cross, right? We want to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbors, ourselves, even in this side of heaven in our imperfection, we want to do it increasingly better day by day. Amen? That, Francis had you ready for that. Amen? Amen. That's right. And then I want to take us from that and show us some weapons that God has given us in our arsenal to help us defeat worry in our lives and the assurance we have from God to walk in faith, okay? Got your Bibles open? So we can wage war with worry so that we can enjoy peace in whatever situation we face and be effective witnesses of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at our text, shall we? We're at Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his life's span? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field, how they grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all his glory, did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so raised the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things, the Gentiles eagerly seek for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you for your glory. Work in our hearts, open our ears and eyes so that we may uh, see your truth, and by your grace, through your spirit that indwells us as believers, that we might apply this truth. In Christ's name, amen. Now, the first point you see it on your outline is our adversary, which is worry, okay? The heart of Jesus' message here is very, very simple. The smallest child, the oldest adult gets it. He's saying, don't worry, right? Don't be anxious. He tells us three times directly, do not be anxious or worry. He refers to worry six times in 10 verses. I mean, he's, he's, it's pretty clear what he's up to here. You understand? Look at verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for the body as to what you shall, shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? 
He says, for this reason, and there he's pointing back to the previous near context in which Jesus says that the believer's only master can be God, okay? And you see that in the verse, verse 24, right before that, right? He says, no one can serve two masters for either will hate the one or love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So he's saying, because God is your master, believer, I say to you, don't be anxious, just as a slave doesn't worry about the necessities of life, right? A slave doesn't have to worry about where his work's coming from, where his food's coming from, where his clothing's coming from, right? He's taken care of by the master. The master's going to keep him clothed and fed so that he can do the things the master wants to accomplish. It's not a great analogy, but it's a true analogy, right? Uh, th- for us, we, should, we, have a, we serve a good master. I hope I don't have to build that theology for you, right? He's a good master who's going to take care of us in the best way possible, and we as his, his slaves are, are, are maintained to the way that the utmost, that whatever's needed so that we can give glory to him. You say, whatever's needed? Well, I think I need a, a Mercedes. Well, no, no, I don't mean that. I mean, whatever's needed so that you might, with your life, bring glory to God. So I've known people who starved to death going out on a mission field somewhere. Exactly. God gave them what they needed to bring glory to God. Sometimes, Cancer brings glory to God, right? Sometimes starvation or hunger or persecution can even bring glory to God. You understand this, right? So let's don't, you know, I know it's Biddy Hen Day, National Fallback Day. <laughs> no, it's, you know, we're not, we're not going there with a the charismatic theology here, okay? What we're talking about here is a God who's going to do what's best to glorify his name and bring forth his, his, uh, his work within this world and be used by us for, isn't that awesome to be used by God for his glory? Absolutely amazing. He says, if the slave doesn't have to worry about the necessity of life for that reason, neither should we. In the Greek there, the syntax at the beginning of verse 25, where it says, do not be anxious in the NASB, NASB which I'm reading from, is uh, uh, the negative may. There's a couple of words that can be used for no in the Greek, plus a present active imperative, which the idea of that syntax is this, stop it. <laughs> it's not... Uh, don't, if it ever comes up, don't worry. He's saying, hey, listen, what's happening right now in your life is you are being anxious. Stop it. Stop what you're doing and don't start it again. That's the force of the Greek there. Jesus says, stop worrying and don't worry anymore. So if God is telling me to not do this, the first thing I want to know really is what is worry? Because I think we have trouble with our definition of worry sometimes. Uh, let me just run through a couple of different types of people who will encounter a text like this that are the wrong way to think of worry, okay? The first one's kind of the loose, cheerful, happy-go-lucky guy. He, he takes responsibility lightly. He's not a guy who gets a whole lot done. He's never in time. Uh, he doesn't worry about the next five minutes any more than tomorrow, so it's no big deal to him, right? Uh, he's a guy who's it's difficult to get to work. Sometimes it's probably difficult to have a job. He's a guy that's not going to be vindictive or bitter or backbiting usually because he doesn't care about promotions, positions, and social structure. This guy hears a verse like this, and he's thrilled, okay, especially if he's carrying the King James, which says, take no thought for your life, because he's like, well, this is awesome. I don't have to worry. You know, just let, let go and let God, right? He knew everybody was already too uptight. You know, why bother studying to get an A? Uh, let's just get by. Why, why get hung up on committing to anything? Why do we commit to anything? Don't worry, be happy, right? That's not the message of this text at all. The message is not to ignore life and to ignore life's responsibilities, 
That's, what are the sins that that might bring to mind if you were to go that route? It would be bad stewardship for number one, right? It would be the sin of laziness, number two, and you could go on and on. I mean, right off the bat, you understand that this is not a, a Christ-like attitude to just say, well, I'm not going to apply myself to the circumstances God has given me in my life. We're to take care of this life as a stewardship given from God. Ecclesiastes 10.18 says, if a man is lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. 2 Thessalonians 3.11-12 says, Paul's writing, he says, we hear some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fa- fashion and eat their own bread. Be about your life and as a good steward. It's not a call to ignore life's responsibility. That's one time. Okay, number two, this guy is a balanced person who's known for being a good guy. He's known for being a hard worker. He's married with 2.3 children. He supports them faithfully. He's providing for the needs of his family. He's planning for the future uh, without being too preoccupied with it. One morning he wakes up and he finds that his 28-year-old wife can't speak, can't move her right side. The doctor discovers there's a brain tumor and surgery really can't do the trick and The doctor tells this young husband that his wife will never return to her her normal strength and that she'll probably never regain her mental clarity. Tragic situation. In fact, the prognosis is she'll probably only live about three more years during which she will sink more and more into a vegetative state and then she'll die. It's a tough situation, right? That person has the possibility of hearing these verses unless he's spiritually mature and full of grace. He rejects this teaching. It's too simplistic. What do you mean don't be anxious about life? How is that even possible, right? You don't know my situation. You don't know what I'm going through. I mean, yeah, that may be good for the average guy, but what I'm going through, no, no, that doesn't apply to me. In fact, if he's tired or in a bad mood, he may start to list things that people ought to start worrying about pretty soon. You know, the environment, the threat of nuclear uh, war, racial prejudice, ISIS, AIDS in Africa, rampant alcoholism, whatever, right? Divorce, work problems, deadlines, family struggles. Not worry? You don't understand. That can't be done. He is a guy that unless he is careful, has begun to get this now. This is important. Begins, and we do this if we're not careful in our own lives often. He begins to elevate his experience above the word of God. Did you hear that? He begins to elevate his experience above the word of God. In other words, I'm good with the Bible as long as it doesn't contradict what I'm going through. If it contradicts what I'm going through, then something needs to be adjusted. And it's not what I'm going through. And it's not how I'm reacting to what I'm going through. But it is a misinterpretation of the word of God. Surely God doesn't mean to be anxious for nothing. A person like that ends up eliminating the one thing that can truly help him. And that's God's antidote to worry that we're going to talk about here in this passage. And he ends up being like a guy who wanted to follow Jesus but couldn't commit all the way, right? He let me go bury my father. And Remember that guy? And Jesus says, hey, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. What's happening here is this is a call to have faith in God and have victory through him over worry, no matter how dire your circumstances may be. There's a third type of person who might hear this message and respond in a wrong way. This guy's a type A personality. He believes that their worry is not really worry. He believes that there are a few who actually 
know how to apply themselves to the right priorities and are frustrated that others don't get us fired up. Uh, He's a very spiritual person a lot of times. uh, And he thinks that most people are just plain distracted by unimportant things. Let me illustrate this. Turn your Bibles to Luke 10 real quick. I'm going to show you this person because we don't typically think of this person like this. Luke 10, verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, Jesus and the disciples, they entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. But check out verse 40. Okay, Luke 10, 40. Martha says, but Martha was distracted. Did you catch that? Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him, came up to Christ and said, Lord, do you not care? Wow. Going to the one who's provided everything, the creator, the king, the one who's provided everything, going, you don't care, right? By the way, before we're too hard on Martha, you ever felt like that? Does the Lord not care about my situation, what I'm going through right now? Because he could fix it with a, you know, right? Lord, do you not care? She thought she was so right that she expected Jesus' support on this, okay? Do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her then to help me. Jesus, tell, tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, look at verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are, what's the word? You are worried. <laughs> you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. It's a single-mindedness here. For Mary has chosen the good part, and it shall not be taken away from her. Is it possible that even in our good service, and Martha was trying to serve, that's a good thing, right? I mean, we do this, right? We set up food tables and ushers, and people are taking music. These guys work hard at all this stuff. It's possible to do good service, preach or whatever, with a wrong motive, right? What, what's, he, what's happening here? And the difference is, if, if your focus is not a Godward focus, then it's off. Okay? Martha had lost her focus on the greater thing, single-mindedly on God. She could maybe even still be doing all the same stuff, almost, right? And been doing it from a Godward focus, and she'd just be like, I love serving. I'm so glad I'm making time for Mary to be able to sit there and listen to him right now. You know, it's so exciting, because I know it's going to mean a lot to her life. She's going to grow. You know, this is a call to Godward focus as a means to victory over worry. So we don't want to be like those three, okay? We need to define worry in a biblical way first, okay? The first thing you notice, you see it on your outline, worry is not godly concern. Okay, there is a type of concern that is not worry, but does ponder a situation and work through the best ways of dealing with a situation. It's the concern of the follower of Jesus Christ to be faithful, to be useful in his service. I think about 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, after listing a long list of hardships there. Paul says, apart from such external things, all these tough things I'm going through, there is a daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. He had a concern. You say, well, was Paul worrying there? No, we don't take that to be the case, right? What it is is there is a type of concern that is not a worry concern, okay? And I want to I separate those to you so that you can start to understand that it is proper to be involved, serving, uh, concerned, thinking through things, planning and working through an issue. But it is wrong if it, if it becomes that concern, that godly concern becomes worry, which is a sin, Okay? 
There is a, a certain intensity that we should have about our lives as believers. Do you believe that? Do you believe that uh, we, because of what Christ has done in our life, because of the great gospel message that we have to bring forth, that we should have an intensity about our lives and the stewardship that he's given us? That we should work hard towards what he, his goals, that we should plan carefully. Scripture upon scripture shows us that, right? We should think deeply about how we're to make the most out of what God has given us, not for ourselves, but for his purposes. And see, but this concern should drive us where? To God, closer to God, and to prayer, all right? Are you tracking with me on this so far? I know it's going to get a little minutiae-like in here, all right? But the difference between godly concern and worry really comes down to an issue of focus. Our concern when we are in godly concern is not for our well-being, but for God's glory and the well-being of others. You see that? It is, doesn't that go back to the two great commandments? Love God with all your heart, so I want him to be glorified. Love your neighbor as yourself. I really want to help and come alongside them with whatever stewardship God has given me. Stewardship, the whole concept of stewardship, take it outside tithing and different things like that. We're stewards of everything we have, right? It's not just money. Stewardship, that concept, that biblical concept presupposes planning and thought. You understand that, right? I have an accounting of what God has given me and I have a plan for using it the best way to bring glory to his name and to help others. But that concern and thought should always be God-directed. And these godly concerns like what Paul expresses there come as a result from looking at things from God's perspective and seeking to ensure that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, just like we saw a little earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. So a man looks at his job and instead of being worried about promotions and concerned about what happens if I lose it and all this kind of stuff, he says, Colossians 3.23, right? I'm going to work as unto the Lord. I want to be a faithful steward of the, the job. How can I use this to glorify God's name and help others? So that others, so that his testimony be, others will see Christian as a man with integrity. He's not lazy. As I work, even if it's, you know, on an assembly line, my work ethic shows that I'm different because I believe that it's important that I'm faithful in my work because God, it's an act of worship to God when I work. This guy looks at his wife and kids and he says, I'll endeavor to model Christ to them, to show love and care for them. I want to teach my children to to follow Christ as a steward of them. And if God in his perfect and sovereign will chooses to take them in what's to me an untimely manner or way, or if he gives us less than ideal circumstances in life, I'm going to follow him in faith. I'm going to trust him that he'll use the difficulties of this life to further his purposes in my life and in the lives of others and bring glory to his name. Are you tracking with me on this? I know, do you feel warm? I'm, I'm a little warm, but, uh, you know, do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Because it gets warm, people start snoozing, you know what I'm saying? It has nothing to do with me. Just warm. Don't miss this, folks, because the circumstances are quite insignificant. They don't feel insignificant. I don't mean to belittle it, okay? But they are somewhat insignificant because whatever circumstances come our way, what's going to happen? How long are they going to last? What's the longest amount of time they might last in your life? 
what's the oldest guy on earth, right? 100, I don't know, 130, let's say. I don't know if that's right or not. 130, I'm 52, I think. All right? I gave no thought to that. All right, so what is that, 78 years or something like that? If I live that long, oh, please no. Right? <laughs> 78 years, that's the longest this problem's going to last. Then what's going to happen? I will die. I will go be with my Lord. I will see as I have been seen. I will be glorified. I will, sin will be passed away. I'll be out of the presence of it. All this kind of stuff. And you know what? Whatever the troubles and trials were in life, they really don't matter a whole lot anymore. Amen? That was good. Y'all need to watch him. He's good. You see what I'm saying? This is terribly important because we are so horizontally focused that we sometimes have an inability to say, you know what? God is intervening in my life. He is a God who is sovereign, amen? He is a God who has all power. He's omnipotent, right? He's a God who loves you, cares for you. He sent his only son so you and I might live. And this same God is allowing certain things to pass through his mighty hands into our lives for a purpose so that we might give glory to him. So if this horrible thing that we don't want to happen in our life happens, should I worry about it or should I start looking at it and going, how does God want to use this to further his purposes? That'll change your perspective. But a friend of mine, he got... 42 years old, man, got terminal cancer. Little, little children at home. Actually went through the process, cleared of cancer, and about a week later died of a heart attack on the road. Lovely guy, love the Lord. Man, what a sweet fellow. But when he got his cancer deal, he didn't look around and go, oh no, what about my kids, what about this? What? You know, he didn't start worrying and all that. He said, I remember I went in, I'm because of pastor, you know, you're going in the hospital room and you're thinking, okay, how am I going to help him to see the best way on this, you know, and how am I going to listen and not talk too much, you know, you're, all these things that you're trying to think through. And the first thing he says to me, hey, I can't wait to see how God's going to use this. Wow. There was no worry there. That was perspective. That was an eschatological mindset that really preempts even the possibility of worry. I'm not saying the guy didn't have times where he got concerned about this or that. I'm sure he did. I know he did. He's a friend of mine. But by and large, the direction, if not the perfection of his life was, hey, God's working. We'll see what he does. Whatever. I want to be faithful. I want to glorify his name. This guy looks at his wife and kids. He looks at his job. He looks at his material profession. Uh, possessions and he says, man, I've been given this stuff. How can I utilize my home for Christ? How can I utilize my car for Christ? My money, my food, how can I glorify God through all that he's given me? And we're prosperous people. Every one of us in this room, the poorest of us in this room is prosperous. To have the mindset of a guy like Job who after he lost kids and properties and livestock and all that stuff and he just goes, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. So he has a concern that he uses it well for the glory of God, to help others to see a testimony of Christ. But he does not let that worry, that concern become worry. Now, if you want to do a self-examination and see whether you have worry or godly concern about whatever you're going through in your life, it's really pretty simple. And you can ask yourself this basic question. You ready for this? Are my thoughts or concerns 
self-centered. That is, are they about my comforts? Are they about my own desires, needs, rights, what I deserve, that phrase? Or are they God-centered? Am I concerned because I want to see God glorified and I want to see the gospel go forth? What, what, which way would this bring perhaps the most glory to God, if this, however this pans out? You see, a healthy focus upon God and what he can and will accomplish through you and what he has given you is not the anxiety talked about here. And it can be tricky at times. I mean, a preacher can get up <clears throat> and be concerned about the message he's about to give. You know, you want to be true. You want to be helpful. You want to be spoken in love. You want to be communicated well so people understand it. But a guy could also get up and be worried about his reputation. What do they think of me? How do they like it? Stuff like that. As humans, we are very skilled at developing mixed motives and mixed worries, too. We need to, be pra- we need to practice being brutally honest with ourselves and asking God to give us discernment as we seek to analyze these things. Now, if I find the things I'm concerned about are essentially selfish or I'm preoccupied with things that are going to benefit me for my benefit, then that's the type of worry we're describing here, okay? And let her be on your outline. That type of worry is sin, Okay? Look back at verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and your body than clothing? Worry, see, is the sin of not trusting the promise and the providence of God. It's interesting, our English word for worry comes from an old German word that means to strangle or to choke. <laughs> That's worry, isn't it? Isn't that a beautiful picture? Of, I mean, it's really that, isn't it? That's exactly what worry does. It strangles us mentally and emotionally and even physically in some extreme cases. Dr. Charles Mayo, the the, the famous Mayo Clinic guy, he wrote this. He says, worry affects circulation, the heart, the glands, the whole nervous system. He says, I've never met a man or known a man to die of overwork, but I've known a lot who died of worry. Strangles you. It's been reported that a dense fog extensive enough to cover seven city blocks 100 feet deep is composed of less than one glass of water. It's just broken up into 60 million droplets. So in the right form, a few gallons of water can cripple a a large city, right? Now think about this. It's a great analogy to worry, I believe. When we worry, the substance of our worry is often extremely small compared to the size that it forms in our mind and the damage it does to our lives. And worry is sin because it's the opposite of contentment. Every believer should be able to say with Paul, hey, I've learned how to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself, right? Philippians 4. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the the secret of being filled and, get this one, being hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering what? Need. What happens is our focus has shifted off of God, that idolatry has gone into place, and that's really the reason that a worry is sin, okay? So how do we fight it? Look at point number two on your outline, our arsenal. We're going to begin with one of them this week. Next week, we'll, we'll continue on with it. Uh, the, first, the, the, ars- the first part of the arsenal is contentment, okay? And what that means really is our, our, wep- our best weapon is a good understanding of who God is, what he does, and being content in that relationship, okay? Put off worry, put on contentment. 
If we truly understand the character of God and the priorities of God, then we can have peace in the most trying circumstances there are. Now look at this, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious. Stop being anxious. Stop worrying for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put, put on. He's talking about basic needs there, okay? Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? And that question that he asked there right at the end, it's the Greek construction here is a question that expects a positive answer. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? And the, yeah. You, you see, it's a very powerful emotional construction <clears throat> that expects a response like this. Well, yeah, my life is worth so much more than that. Well, good. The realization then should be this. God knows that my life is valuable. He gave a son for us, right? And he wants to care for me. And, and there you begin to see his character coming out, right? He has provision. He has care. I love the fact that, and, and it's amazing to me, the, the capacity that we have to understand perhaps the love of the gospel and the grace of the gospel and ignore the relationships of the gospel at times. And what I mean by that is when you think about caring, I love the fact that here in this passage, two times God is referred to, God the Father is referred to in a very personal way as your heavenly father. Jesus is saying, your heavenly father cares. He cares. Or when you go down to Matthew 7, a little later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the illustration. He says, is there a man among you when his kid comes to him and he asks for a loaf of bread? He's not going to give him a stone, is he? What kind of crummy father would that be? Or, or he asks for a fish. He's not going to hand him a snake. It's absurd, right? And Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 11, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, argument from the lesser to the greater, shall your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who will ask him? I mean, we got a good and perfect heavenly father and he cares. Your, your father cares. He knows what you need. He knows what is best. Okay. We don't always know that. So we should realize that our total well-being comes from God. And therefore we should be totally content to find letter A, our fulfillment in God. Verse 26. But look at the birds of the air. If they do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are they not worth much more? Are you not worth much more than they? Again, the argument from lesser to greater. And you remember Jesus is on a hillside, right, when he's doing this sermon. And, you know, by his providence or whatever, birds fly by. He says, check it out. Look at the birds. Uh, look at, look at, the, look at the, the lilies of the field. He says, check out the birds. Look at them. They're not sitting here freaking out about the affairs of life, are they? Have you ever seen a bird with an ulcer? Hypertension. No, of course not, right? You say, Pastor, does this mean that we shouldn't ever sow seed or harvest or gather? Is this a call just to sit and wait for God to drop a hamburger in my lap? Absolutely not. Again, not a call to laziness. I mean, if you ever watch the birds of the air, we have in our, in where we live in our backyard, we got a ton of hummingbirds. Man, those things are busy little bees, you know, they're little hummingbirds, I guess, but they're fast. You can't see their wings. They're pretty amazing to watch. They're not lazy. They're not just sitting around waiting. They're busy in their task of survival, right? They go and they take care of things with the stewardship that God's given them. They rest for a while and I can watch them. They'll sit on over there in the little branch and rest. 
Let me read you a very literal translation of the first part of this verse, and hopefully it'll help you understand exactly what Jesus was saying. <clears throat> if you do, you can do this from the Greek, okay? Look at the birds of the sky that they do not continually sow, nor do they continually harvest, nor do they continually gather into barns. It's an argument against workaholism, right? They're diligent, just as they should be, but they're not consumed by it or with it. They trust God enough to not get worried. I knew a guy once who he, he just worried about life all the time. He lived in constant fear that if he didn't work all the time, if he let up for even a minute, he'd lose everything. I mean, literally, this is the way the guy felt. And it put a lot of stress, as you can imagine, on him and his family. His boss knew, man, he could use that on him, you know, at any time. A little pressure on him, and he'd, he'd be the guy working Saturdays, Sundays, whatever it took. And really what happened as a result of this guy's trust in God, he sacrificed in the end everything. His family, his kids grew up, and he hardly knew them because he was never around. It hurt him spiritually. He's often missing out on fellowship and comfort from God's people and the word because the boss kept him busy on Sundays because he knew he could. In effect, he missed out on the truth of our passage. Our passage says, hey, quit fretting, follow God totally, and the rest will fall into place. Jesus begins this argument that we should find our fulfillment in God by pointing to who God is. He's your heavenly father, and he cares. Is not life more than food in the body than clothing? In the original, he really drives this home. The verb in the sentence means to be worth more. Are you not worth more than food? Are you not, and then he does it, uh, he strengthens it. Are you not worth more which is in the verb, and then he adds the more on there. So it's like, are you not worth more, much more than food? And then again, the idea is, of course you are to God. So, so quit trading the important things for secondary things. You're so worried about provision and having all the stuff and the trips and the right labels on your clothes that you work yourself into a fret and you reject God by a lack of trust. Your father is on your side. I don't, know if, I don't know if Bill Gates has a son, all right? But if he has a son, do you think Bill Gates' son ever in the middle of the night wakes up and goes, oh, I hope there's food. There's going to be breakfast tomorrow. Ah, oh, the guy has so much money that, you know, he's never worried about them where the next meal's coming from, right? Our father has greater resources than Bill Gates, right? I mean, that's a puny little pusillanimous example. Bill Gates and God, I mean, they, you can't even measure them together. We can have fulfillment and we can have contentment in God as we ponder his attributes, the one that Jesus draws our attention to here. Look at what he says. Number one, he says he owns it all. Your heavenly father owns the entire universe and everything in it. Do you realize that? That's theology. He absolutely does. David exclaimed in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. In Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, God says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and everything it contains. It's my stuff. I got it. I'm not without resources. It's not braggadocious. It's just a statement of fact. I love the story about the early days of Dallas Theological Seminary when they were on the verge of closing the school down because of money. And the board was meeting and going over its financial woes and be really begin to worry that they might have to close the school down. And uh, one of the godly men in the meetings written commentaries, Henry Ironside, maybe you don't know the name. 
He, he reminded the men in the meeting, he says, you know, our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Maybe we should just pray to him for provision. So they did that. And as they were praying, this is such a cool story. It's not the way it always works. Don't go home and start praying and expect this to happen to you necessarily. But as they're praying, a rancher comes into the secretary's office, right? And he's got a truckload of cattle, and he's, he wanted to sell and give the proceeds to the seminary. He's just coming by to see if that'd be all right and how to go about it. So she breaks into the meeting and tells him they're sitting there praying to the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right, to sell a few, and boom. See, God has the ability. Sometimes he provides in cool Memorable ways like that, sometimes he provides in less memorable ways like, you know, you work from 8 in the morning until 5.30 at night and, you know, you got to check on the 1st and the 15th. If there's something we truly need, you do need to know this. God has the resources to provide it. So what, what, why worry? If he has the resources and he is who he says he is, why do we worry? The opposite is true. Don't worry about losing something you don't have either, Right? Sometimes our worries like that. I'm afraid I'm going to lose something. If God wants you to have it, he'll let you keep it. And if he doesn't want you to have it, there's nothing you can do to hold on to it and keep it. It's just the way it works. One day somebody came running up to John Wesley shouting, your house is burned down, your house is burned down. Wesley replied to the guy, he says, no, it hasn't. I don't own a house. You see, the house I've been living in belongs to the Lord. And if it's burned down, that's one less responsibility for me to care for. That's pretty cool. God owns everything and we're simply stewards. If God wants me to have it, no man can take it away. So what good does worry do? If God doesn't want me to have it, there's nothing I can do to get it, really. What good does worry do? He owns it all. I need not worry. Not only does he own it, number two, he controls it all. Look at verse 27. And which of you, by the means of being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? Now, there are two ways that people generally take this verse. That word lifespan, the NASB, which I'm reading from, can mean length of life or it can mean stature. So it could mean, hey, you know, how, how can you by worrying add a cubit, which is the length from your elbow, an average man's elbow to his fingertip, about 18 inches to his height. You can't worry and add anything to your height, right? I mean, when I played football, I was 6'3", 275 pounds. If you told me I could have worried or done something and got an extra one foot six inches on top, be seven foot nine, 350 defensive tackle coming around the end, whoa, I'd have been all up for that. Think that would have been an advantage? You bet. But no matter how hard I would have tried or worried or, or no matter how much I fretted, stretched, hung from my ankles, whatever, I could never have added a cubit to my height, right? In fact, the older I get, it goes the other way. God controls my height. He set my height. I can't really change that. I, I don't think that's the best interpretation of this verse. I really think that Jesus is saying really the other thing. You can't, by being anxious, add another 18 inches to the journey of your life. I like that one. Yeah, you know, there's nothing you're you, you, you just can't. There's nothing you're going to be able to do to elongate your life if you wanted to. He's got his, he's got your day set, and he's got it all planned out. So why worry? We should rest in the knowledge that God controls everything. I think back to Peter in Acts chapter 12. I mean, James has been killed. He was put in jail, beheaded, killed. Now Peter's in jail, same people jailing him, all that kind of stuff, same place, everything. And he's, when, they, when, when they, the angels of the Lord comes in to, to basically wake him up and get him out of there, what's he doing? Sleeping. Soundly, so soundly, they got to like get him on the side. Get up. Why? I mean, if, if you and I, we go, oh, James isn't here. James was here written on the wall, you know, that's going to happen to me, you know, what's going to happen? 
you know, he was sleeping because he knew, hey, if that was the way, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And if I'm here, okay. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't worry about it. God was in control. If God wanted him dead, he'd be dead. If God wanted him alive, he'd be alive. Somebody once said that worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And that's so true. God is in control. He's in control of your circumstances as well. Whatever goes through his benevolent fingers into your life, he can use it for good. He works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. Amen? So why worry? Your father has the resources, and he's in control of the resources and everything else. Not only that, number three, he provides it. He provides it all. The loving and caring God who controls it all and has it all will provide everything that is needed for the day. I think back to Abraham in Genesis 22 when he said, you know, Jehovah Jireh, God just provided. I didn't sacrifice my son. He gave the ram instead. First Kings 17, you can look at that on your own this afternoon as we're running short of time, but go look at that and see where the prophet goes to a poor widow on God's direction and really asks for her last food and everything and how God provided. Look down verse 31. <clears throat> Do not be anxious then, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things, the Gentiles, by the way, that, that is a, a word that is not meaning just like you know, most of us in here are Gentiles, I'm sure. Um, but it's really meaning more like the, the outside the blessing of God, okay, the heathen. For all those things, the world seeks. For your heavenly Father, he knows you need all these things, okay? And I love the word seek there, the, the Gentiles seeking for those things. It's an intense word. It means to look intensely. It's always used negatively. Matthew uses it three times. He uses it here, and both the other times are with regard to an evil and adulterous generation seeking a sign. And, and, and he's saying, you know, they seek, this is their, their, their operation of life is seeking after this kind of stuff intensely. You have a God, you have your heavenly father who provides it for you. So you ought to be living and acting just a little bit different than the Gentiles, the heathen. When you and I worry, we're like the wicked and the lost. We, it's hard to tell the difference, isn't it? We should be living in such a way that people go, why do you have such peace even in this difficult circumstances? Because I am a child of the almighty God who owns it all, who controls it all, and who provides it all. I have no reason to worry. Yeah, the circumstances aren't the way I would have drawn it up maybe, but you know what? It's going to be better than that because whatever he's up to is best. Verse 28, why are you anxious about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field how they grow, uh, they don't toil or spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not, clo did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so raised the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Solomon was a wealthy dude, right? Check out 2 Chronicles 9 sometime to see the kind of wealth this guy had. In one year, he would bring in like the equivalent of today's dollars, $4 billion in gold in a year. The shields that he had made for his army out of precious metals were worth about 400 million, just the shields. He drank out of solid gold cups. He had so much silver that Second Chronicles 9 tells us that silver was as common as stones on the streets of Jerusalem. It was, yeah, yeah, there's some silver. 
But all that being said, and all those resources and clothing with your finest and all that, the awesome way that God clothes the flowers dwarfs Solomon's best robes. By the way, an interesting thing to do, you can Google it and look at a flower petal under a microscope. It's even beauty at that level. I mean, it's pretty amazing, actually. Jesus is making a point that's clear. Hey, if God cares for the disposable flowers, how much more will he care for you? Guys, gals, we need to go to war against worry, okay? Because what we're doing when we're worrying is we're saying God's not who he says he is. God doesn't own it. God doesn't control it. God doesn't provide it. And I can't find contentment in him. I need contentment in all this peripheral stuff that I'm grabbing out for and seeking after just like the heathen. And, and when I'm in a hard situation and I know that my God cares for me and that he's sovereign and he has control over all these matters and no, yeah, it looks bleak to my limited sight. I'm able to step back and go, while I don't see every detail of what's going on here, I serve a God who knows the end from the beginning, who has no lack of resources, who is absolutely incredible, strong, uh, he's omnipotent, He's loving, he's caring, he's working all things together for good on my behalf. That's a promise of scripture if I love him, right? So why worry? It doesn't change anything other than our testimony and, and our effectiveness as believers walking this planet. You see what I'm saying? As Christians in this day and age, unfortunately, I think we look a little bit too much like the world. I'm not talking about the way we dress or what we drive or how we live and things like that as much as I am. We encounter a problem, we respond often just like the world does. Sadly, like the world does. And so for that coworker who maybe, if you're like me, in your place of employment, I couldn't throw a rock and hit another Christian. Not that I'd want to. That's kind of a weird thing to do, but you know what I'm saying? But they know where I'm coming from, and they know what I believe. They know my background, all that kind of stuff. And when things go rough in the office or stuff like that, you want to know what they're doing? They're looking. Is there anything real about what he talks about? Is there anything true to who he says God is and what he can do? And if when things are buckling or looking scary, and if I react just like they do, you know, what the thought that goes through their head is this. It's no different. Testimony is just ground zero. And the sad part about that is absolutely unnecessary. Because like my friend, who got that cancer report at age 42, there's absolutely nothing bad about anything that comes into our life because God's going to use it for his glory and to impact others. My friend who died that I mentioned earlier, the church we were in, I would say the next five years, growth, people coming to the Lord and things like that, so many of them had seen his testimony had watched that and seen how they reacted and just said, boy, you know, I don't, I don't know much about theology in the Bible, 
but I do know this. Whatever's going on in that man's life, I need to know more about it. Whoever's giving him the peace that passes comprehension, I want to know him because I'm not responding. I wouldn't have responded that way in that situation. I don't know what I would have done. That's what they'd say. And even after he was dead and gone, it was amazing to see the impact just from testimonies. And even today, as you tell a story about a guy like that, to see God work. We serve a great God, and we should be content in him. And when we are content in him, there's absolutely no room for worry. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together, and we thank you for your word. Lord, it uh, cuts us deep, and we realize how many times we fail in this very area. And uh, Lord, we just come to you and thank you for your forgiving grace for those failures in our life and our sin. And um, Lord, help us to put our theology into practice, to move it the 16 inches from our head to our heart, and so that may be lived out in our life when situations like this come our way. Lord, may we not be worriers, but may we be rejoicers. May we find our contentment in you and trust in you to your glory so that the world may be impacted too. In Christ's name, amen.